morning. We are happy. Okay, good morning. Now we're in progress. Okay. Um, all right. So we are doing one more overview. Now what I found this week when we did the overview, you know, I can't remember from years back every time we do this. Uh, I thought this week that what we would probably do is pick up there where we landed. We finished in uh, 19 or 20, right? Last week uh, at the end of the uh, hold on. We finished in 19, right? And I thought we would pick up in 20 and finish doing the rest of the overview to fill in. But no, no. Instead, we did another pause. But what we actually did was another um, very, I think, very important part of doing an overview. And that is we took our, good morning, Susan. We took our book keywords, meaning the keywords that flow through the whole thing, right, that are not just relegated to a specific chapter, but that consistently are seen throughout the whole book. We took a look at all of those major keywords this week. So that was your the majority of your work. Um, we kind of took a little vote before we started. We decided we're not going to make lists of, of keywords, but if somebody has something very specific they want to see visually, just let me know. And I'm very happy to do that. But it's a little bit redundant to do that. What what I think it should have happened would be you did those keyword lists on your own. And then after observing what you wrote in your list making, then you should have begun to start either having certain questions, right? Or begin to trigger connections. Uh, also merging some of these keywords as well. How, do, how, how does one relate to the other? So this is it. This is what you should have been doing this week. Becoming familiar with the meanings or identifying characteristics, right, concerning each of those words. And we had, um, let me see if I can find my little list. It's not there, it's not there. Okay. We had wrath, blood, earthquake, woe, and plagues. Okay, those five lists. How did you do on those list making, right? Um, this is kind of what mine looked like right here. Just so you can see, I, I just put them on a Word document. I made myself three columns and started listing the things I saw using the verses that she gave us. Now, also, I don't know if you realize it or not, but as you got into doing those um, keywords, you may have found it necessary to read a little before and a little after. Because sometimes those keywords, even though the word plague or wrath or blood is not in the verses that follow, the verses that follow explain what that blood topic was about or what that plague topic was about, right? So by making these lists, by, by learning to observe not just the one verse right where it's stated, but looking at it in its full context and you start making lists on it, then you are beginning to identify its characteristics kind of how it fits in the book, understanding how also how important each of those subjects, those five subjects are to your understanding on the whole of this book. A, a lot of insight is gained by making lists, believe it or not. And it seems real mechanical when you're doing it at first and when you're not real familiar with this method. But let me assure you that I cannot tell you how much worshiping I have done before God in my many years of doing this just through list making because when you get done with the, some of these lists and you sit back and I mean your love for Jesus grows 
your awe of, of what he did for you, your fear right now. There's a lot of things that say this should put the fear of God in you, and it certainly should. Um, as far as your desire to bring others into faith and also to assess your own personal relationship with God. And, and I, I'm assured, I, I'm really confident you all here know the Lord, but we need to help others come to that assurance of, of faith also. And how do you help them come to a place of peace rather than fear when they read something like Revelation, right? If they're young, if you've got young kids and they're just now learning all of this, that's this is one of the things that will pop up for them because they'll start reading some of this and they get fearful and they get anxious, right? Why do you think that is? Why would you be anxious or fearful when you when you read through Revelation? You're not sure where you stand with God. Okay, that's one quality or part, or what else? You might not know what, what else about that time frame. There's a timeline. Do, do you know where you fit on that timeline? If you are a believer, are you falling inside of those days of God's wrath? Or, or on the whole, the, the fullness of those seven years that we're looking at, starting in chapter six all the way through 19. I mean, where are you, right? And once you study this, you're going to, I think, begin to grow assured of where we are and where we're not, right? The longer we're in this. And we're not quite there yet, but you can begin to develop those things. So you're going to understand your subjects better. You're going to see how they relate to one another. You're also going to understand... Uh, um, the purpose for some of those words, like for instance, the, the plagues and the wrath of God, what is God's design purpose in that, right? Why is he bringing wrath? What is his wrath? When is his wrath? Um, right now, we're still a little conflicted probably for most of us as to is the totality of what we're looking at, at starting with the breaking of the seals, does that begin the wrath of God or or is it, does it more declaratively fall into a certain segment of the book? And then if that's true, then what does that mean about the rest of it? The, the seals and trumpets and bowls, how are they positionally and relationally to one another? How is it going to line? And I love, I can't wait to do a timeline. I keep wanting to do that. And I keep trying to not give you too many hints about where everything lays because I want you to see it for yourself. But um, I do know that the more you study this and the more that you become familiar, which is what we did this week, just by looking at these keywords and making lists, the more you're going to begin to understand the concept and the layout and the purpose and the function and how things fit and what, what things are in uh, the design purpose of them. And hopefully also as you go along, have you noticed how many times worship shows up? I did not do a segment division on worship. But I think I would love it if somebody would um, make a note of each time in which chapter of the book do you see worship going on in heaven and, and in relationship to the seals, the trumpets and the bowls, where is that worship taking place, right? That would be another good, just came to me. I haven't done that either. So you won't get it this morning, but that's something to consider, okay? 
Um, but I got to tell you, even this week, again, I found some more little tiny things. They're itsy bitsy, but I'm still, I'm refining my own understanding too, as I go through this with you all. So I'm very excited. Okay. So once you did that, then here are some potential questions. I want you to think about just off the top of your head. Oh, I've got a listen. You don't try to write them all down. I've got a list this long. Okay. It's going to be, I'm just going to throw them out and you'll get the, the swing of it immediately. I looked at the subject of wrath and I said, so how is wrath defined in this book? Right. What are the seven bowls of wrath and whose wrath is it? When does God's wrath come? Why does wrath come? What is its purpose? Right. Woes. What is a woe? right? How are the woes characterized? Where do they fall? What happens before? What happens after? And is their placement in the unfolding of these events significant? Is there kind of a, um, like a signal to us of some type, right? Earthquakes, when do they occur? What happens before and after? I hope you, you had a chance to look at that a little bit this week. And as you made your list that you saw, what happened before and what has happened after and how might that be insightful into what you see going on? Even, even for us, when we see things like earthquakes going on today, right? Uh, do they progressively uh, increase or intensify or are they generally the same? Now we've already really kind of talked about that a couple of times, but that was another question that should have been kind of addressed in your observations when you did that. Concerning the plague, what are the plagues? What is God's purpose in them? Did you notice what man's response was to them? What happened in heaven while the plagues were being poured out? Whoa, that was really profound for me. I, I ended up doing a whole kind of a little personal devotion time on that. It was very good for me. <laughs> Does it remind you of anything is my question then because if there's certain things happening while those seven plagues are being poured out in the heavenly realms in, in God's throne, why is, why is it told to us? And if it's told to us, is that important? What, does that mean God wanted you to know that this is what's happening while this is happening? And if so, see what I mean? How all of a sudden you go, oh yeah, never thought of that. Because if God tells it to us and all these little tiny details, every one of them has, has a profound message in it. Your first time through, you're going to not catch all these things. I am still catching new things that I missed before, right? So just don't beat yourself up, but learn to be uh, and not just an observer, but an interrogator. The, the inductive method teaches you to ask who, what, why, when, where, and how about each of your keywords, right? And that's how your list making should have been made. Who is it? Where is it? Why is it? How is it? When is it, right? Um, and as you make those lists through interrogation, you begin to learn. And then what happens is through the interrogation, all of a sudden other thoughts come, right? That's when that place of real meditation before God comes where his spirit really enters in and he's your teacher, right? Um, I had a conversation just last night with a person texting and that was a, that was a conversation we had about how unskilled our world is today at being 
inquisitive, asking questions, being an objective observer. Uh, yes, go ahead, come on in. Who? Oh, poor girl. Okay, we got a person trying to get online with our. Thank you so much. That was very kind of you. She'll be happy because she won't want to miss all this good stuff. Okay. Okay. So, it, concerning plagues, then what happened in heaven while the plagues were being poured out? And does it remind you of anything? If anyone adds to God's word, God will add to him the plagues written in this book. What does that mean? Okay, wait a second. If the plagues are specific to a certain time frame within the unfolding of this, but then the plagues are mentioned and you can actually interject them into a different time frame, now what do you do with that? Right? It, there's an easy resolution and it makes sense once you think it through, but you have to stop and say, oh, that's weird because he was talking about here, but now he's talking about way down here. We're talking like another thousand years later, right? What's that about? Uh, what does, uh, what if that person did that? In other words, added to or took away. What if they did that, but they are already dead before this occurs? Then is the result or the consequence he's saying, I, I will do these things if you add to or take away. What if, what if someone back in the 1800s did that? What if somebody last week did that and now they're dead? are these still imposed upon them? Do you see the questions that can kind of come? It's really kind of fun to think this all, not that you're excited about them having those things happen to them, but, but um, of course, we're, we're all about the blessing part, right? What happens for the overcomer who does not do those things? But still, would you say that's a valuable thought to consider? What if, because I do think that sometimes we, we look at things, especially people who are not really well skilled in reading biblical things, but you can end up going, well, that doesn't make any sense. So none of it's even worth, you know, either recognizing or discussing, or it's not even relative. It's too vague. I mean, they just blow it off. Right. But if you've already uh, thought these things through for yourself, now you can start to say, well, you have to consider this and then you can walk them through. So that's part of the training of doing inductive Bible school uh, study is to train you up to be articulate and mindful, having already thought some of these things through, because these questions are going to start popping up for other people. Okay. So this is training for you as you go out into the world. Uh, the blood was another key word we looked at blood. What did Jesus, his blood accomplish? What then is some, the symbolic picture or message? Historically, what do we know about blood in the eyes of God? How does God view blood, the spilling of blood, the shedding of blood? What is its designed purpose and function for sure within the, real, the household of faith, right? Those who are God's children, um, which means what? What are you going to have to do in order to totally come to an understanding on that subject? What do you think? What would you do? How do you, how do you understand God's perspective or his views concerning the subject of blood? Say it again. It's the it's life. Life is in the blood, right? And where do we know that from? 
Where in the Bible do we know life is in the blood? Old Testament. There we go. So now you're talking, go back to the beginning where God lays out. Remember when he called Israel out of uh, their Egyptian captivity, he brought them through and he began teaching them Leviticus. The whole book of Leviticus is about the holiness of God, right? And how redemption or atonement is made so that we can stand rightly before God and not be consumed, right? So the subject of blood is huge in the book of Leviticus. And if you don't catch that when you're going through Leviticus, you need to go back through Leviticus and redo that book, okay? Because that is an essential. Knowing all that way back here in the back of my head from previous studies, right? You can pull that forward then when you look in Revelation about the subject of blood and say, why, why does blood keep showing up? Man, this is bloody, right? There's blood here, there's blood here, there's blood here. And, and uh, things turn to blood, things are, are consumed by blood, people are made to drink blood. We see all this subject of blood. So why is that meaningful? Why is that important? What, how does God view that subject? Don't just make your list and then say, oh, done with the list. But now examine, critically think it through and say, so why is this an important subject that he keeps bringing up in this book and repeating, repeating, repeating? Okay. All right. So I have wet your appetite, I hope. I hope I have helped um, maybe develop your understanding of what you're doing while you're doing list making, which is very kind of boring. And, you know, it's, it's like read it and write it down, right? And you don't change the wording as much as possible. Retain the wording of the text itself and get it on paper. Put your scripture reference at the end of your um, statements that you record in your list. That's all important for validating what you've said and how you came to that conclusion. And then later you can go back and even double check yourself sometimes because occasionally in conversations in our classes, what will happen is someone will say something and you'll go, well, I, did, I didn't see it that way. What, what, what did I do, right? Now you've got the verse right there. You can go back and reread the verse and go, oh, I shouldn't have changed those words up. I should have left them as they were stated because it, it may mean something other than I emotionally felt it was. You don't want your list making to be emotionally uh, uh, propelled. You want your list making to be very clinical. Does that make sense? At, at first, it's all about the clinical observations and just getting it on paper as said. Okay. Whew. That's a lot. I know I've told you a bunch about list. I, this is your one-on-one training this morning on why you're doing list making, how you can develop it to be more than it is, and to learn then to go into the, the next step, which is to analyze it, meditate on it, expound on it, and also consider where else might I get more information about this so that I understand it better for this context. Now, hopefully Kay is going to take us to some of these things when we move into part three, after the holidays are over. We'll start on part three. Send your list out so we can compare kind of how you do it and what we do. I can do that. I yes. Well, and don't, and just remember, 
I'm at a point where I have done this so many times, I'm eliminating a lot of things. And you're gonna look at my list maybe sometimes and go, well, why didn't she put this? And why didn't she put that, right? It's because I'm, I'm at a point where I'm now cleaning it up and knowing what the real message was and what all the extras were. And I'm eliminating the extras and I'm going for the meat, right? So just know that if, when I send mine out that they may not be as extensive as yours and that is fine. Put everything on yours that you need for where you're at in your development of list making. And later you're gonna learn especially after we finish doing the whole of Revelation and we've started doing our timelining, we start plugging things in, you're going to see what can fall away and what needs to remain. Okay. And that's going to be true because certainly if you look at every uh, instant, like you start with the, the first seal, the breaking of the first seal and the horse that comes out, right. And he's coming to, uh, to conquer with a bow, right. All those little details are not that important as you move on. It's just that that seal is broken and that conquering occurred and what that means. You don't need necessarily all the extra details in it. So you're going to come to figure that out for yourself later. Okay, so that's that. Um, I want to ask you another question. Um, again, more one-on-one training here. This time it's about the subject of visions because what kind of, um, literary style are we in with the book of Revelation? It's, it's a twofold thing, prophecy and, pardon? Not an epistle because that's a letter of, of doctrine, but it's a, pardon? Letters. Okay, it's prophecy and visions, right? Prophecy and visions. So, on the on the one hand, hold on, let me find my book here. My uh, it's what John saw and what he heard. On the one hand, it's about things that are future, yes. But would you also say it's historical? Is it are the things that he is speaking of prophetically? Are they going to be literal events in history? How do we know that? Okay. All right. Yes. That's good. So you can look at one example, which is he, he gave us information about the churches. And now we can historically go back and research. Actually, I lived there, so I know these places exist, right? So you can go back to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, all of them. And you go, yes, they are literal. They're historical. They are, they are recorded. There are ruins of these places on planet Earth yet today even. Some of them are still even in existence. The church at Smyrna, the church at Ephesus, they're there. They're just fragmented and underground, right? Um, so yes, that's one thing. How else do we know that prophecy is going to be literal historical fact at some point? Yes, any prophecy? Ever? Yeah. Look at the Old Testament and see there the prophets. Oh, and there's what happened. Yeah. Daniel has is very profound. Ezekiel is very profound for us in this particular study of Revelation because we're going to go back, we go back to Daniel. And in Daniel, what did we learn? That the, through a vision, just like this one, in his, he had several different ones. He had beasts, but he also had a statue. Remember? And there was a head, and he said about the head, what? You, O king, are that head of gold. And he was speaking about Nebuchadnezzar in the kingdom of 
Babylon. And then there was the, the, the arms, right? And the chest of, and it was the, yeah, Medo, so it was Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and then Rome. So we know now it's fulfilled. In other words, sometimes it's, we have ancient his, uh, prophecy that was given to us. Those things have been fulfilled. We can actually timeline them in history. We have all the research, all the books, all the, all the, the authenticating of all these things. They happen. They're literal. They're truthful, right? So when we look at Revelation, consider that as well. That not only is it a book of a vision and of prophecy that stuffed us down the line, it's future, but it is going to be literal and factual. How might that change the way that you look at it as we observe these things? Very good. Excellent. Oh. Carol, I am, you are amazing me this morning, girl. Good for you. That is exactly right. I couldn't have said it better myself. Just the outline of this book, and that's probably a good place for us to start. One of the things I want to do is to um, work on this at a glance chart that you should have in your own uh, papers somewhere. I hope you've got them like in the front of your book where you can find them quickly. Um, your at-a-glance chart, I can tell you my at-a-glance charts, once I get them finished, and I do like to do them on my computer, as you can see, because I can make them smaller and they aren't so messy, but I like to put these in the back of my Bible, and then when I'm in a class and somebody's teaching on anything, Romans or one of the epistles or whatever, I can pull out my at-a-glance chart and just kind of review real quickly. I mean, real quickly, I can lay this out and go, uh-huh. Okay, and then when they drop in, they start talking about something. I can know if they are using it correctly and if they're actually giving correct insight, right? So that's one of the things I like to do. So these at a glance charts, I think it's important for us to try to develop them. So this is one of the things we want to do this morning. You did all that list making. We're going to talk about your list, but I'm not going to write them on the board, just so you know. I do want to do... Um, uh, the day one's homework was in the spirit, right? We're going to talk about that one and see all of the possibilities that, that you can even subdivide that one down a little bit into other kinds of titles. But let's start with that first one, that book outline that you brought up, okay? What is the book outline? And where do we find that in our Revelation study? I know it's been a long time ago since we talked about it. Chapter one, verse... 19. Okay, chapter 1, verse 19. And so in 119, it gives us an outline. We would call that outline a segment division, right? Okay, so the outline gives us a segment division. It's very neat, it's very precise, and it's really amazing how God Himself gives this one to us so clearly. Uh, we see this in a several books. Uh, the book of Acts does it also, you know, you're to go out into Judea, Samaria, to the, uh, or to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, uh, to the uttermost parts of the world. So it tells you this progressive 
uh, spreading of the gospel after Jesus's death, burial, and resurrection, and his instruction to the building up of the church, the beginning or establishing of the church. Here we have simply an outline about this book, and he says in chapter 1-9, so you got a segment division. How do you break it down? What is the first segment? Okay, and that's found in what chapter? What chapter are the things that you have seen? What did he saw? He saw Jesus. And what chapter was that he saw Jesus in? Chapter one. So it was what John saw, right? Chapter one, all right? Now, what's the next segment division? The things that are. And what chapters are the things that are? Two and three. And what is the, the, the things that are? It's the church. Okay, so here's our little cute church. I guess I should give it some windows so it doesn't look empty. Okay, so that's in chapters two and three. First segment division, what John saw. I really probably, probably didn't need to give it that much room, but what John saw, then chapter two and three, the things that are. And then what is our last segment division in that? Okay, the things. Oops, I almost can't reach it that will take place when after these things what things the things that are right so it's going to be after this Correct. The things that are, and what what uh, part of our book is covered in that last segment division there? Four yep, chapter four to twenty-two. Now, how does that help you just by doing an observation in a bigger view without all the details, but to see that breakdown? How does that help you? Oh, good job. Yes. Right. After these things. Right. And the language itself really does tell you that there's a progression of order. And when you get into looking at the things that are falling in this segment, the things that will take place after these things, you start seeing things like the seals and the trumpets and the bowls. And do they also do that for you in that they show you that there's actually a sequence of order that it has to be locked into? I can't wait till we go into that in more detail, but simply by the observations that you've looked at so far, let's do a quick one, real a real quick one over here. We see it's a book that has um, um, a Jesus is worthy, right? 
to open this book. That's what we saw in chapters uh, five, correct? Are, is that correct? Can you tell? Oh, they can't see it, maybe. Oh, it's her phone, okay. All right, so we're gonna tip that for you there, okay. So we see in chapter five, Jesus is worthy. And what is he worthy to do? To open the seals. And when he opens the seals, how distinctive is it? What does it tell you? When you, when you look at the seals and he opens, it says what? Right then, and he says he opens what? The first seal? Oh, the second seal. And then he opens the second seal. Are you seeing what I'm saying? So it's, a progress, it's progressive. It's numerical. It's, it's in a logic of, of number sequencing. Would you, if you were counting with your three-year-old to teach them how to count, would you say one, seven, eight, 12, 13, four, nine? I mean, would, would you do that? No. So counting in and of itself, the logic of it for us, the first, the second, the third, the fourth, right? Shows you that it's progressive in a certain locked in order. Yes, it's very orderly. I love that subject, by the way. How God has ordered things and how it's, uh, it's one of the things that we talked about very briefly, but when we were talking about the, um, um, the symbolic message of numbers even, right? How in some things it talks about like the king, for instance, the, the thrones that are before God's throne room in chapter four, just before this, and there were 24 elders, right? Um, we see uh, often the number 12 shows up. We see uh, just very precise numbering. And what it shows you is that God has it ordered. It's an orderly. And by the way, when he set up the tribes of Israel in the beginning, how many? 12 tribes. And when he set them up, he gave them distinctive places and, and an order in which to, to go in. And he assigned some of them even specific ministries, right? And no one outside of that was to come in. It was, it was locked in for orderliness, for um, to cause things to work in a way that was smooth and without uh, disruption, right? Without bickering amongst one another. It was, this is who will do it. Done, right? No discussion, it's done. This gives us what as his people? Yes, absolutely. Right. Do you remember what happened with um, Israel in the days of Christ, even by that time? What had happened to the priesthood, for instance, the, the, the Levitical bloodline, who had been a distinguished group for a specific work? What had they begun to do by, the, by that time and even before? But they, what, they were... Well, they did do that too. Yes, they had married and shouldn't have. But when it comes to the priesthood, who the Levitical bloodline, the, the Levites have been said, this is your ordered work and that order and, and uh, 
what is the assignment, the designated assignment have been given to the Levitical. Well, then they began selling off the priesthood, having people from other places, even Gentiles, some of them coming in and being part of the Sanhedrin and part of the, the, uh, the ruling order in Israel. And it caused all these problems. This is really interesting. So when you think about order, when it says Jesus is worthy, and then he began to open the seals and he did it in a concise consecutive order this is really profound i think it does exactly as you said it gives you peace when you know you know three comes next now four now five it's kind of like have counted down at christmas time with your grandkids now or your children before you know and you watch the numbers on uh, as you moved from from the first day of december all the way down to the 25th it gives you a sense of understanding of what's going on so when he says he has the first seal the second seal the third fourth fifth sixth and seventh and when the seventh seal is broken what do you see um, comes out of each out of that seventh seal the next, set of stuff. the next set of stuff now what does that tell you then about the next set of stuff can it come before yeah it can't no so from the seventh seal then you see so these are the seals now you're going to see what comes out trumpets and there's one two three four five six and seven what comes out of the seventh trumpet bowls and then how are they numbered one two three four five six seven so just by looking at that as far as making an observation in this book how does that help you already is it beginning to make sense of some things now here's the interesting part though we also have in this book moments where you're moving along it's the first the second the third the fourth and then all of a sudden you stop they stop and they throw something in right so now let's talk about those let's talk about those interruptions i call these parentheses moments right we we have several of them does anybody know where our parentheses statements come Okay, chapter seven, our first one is going to be chapter seven, and we're going to call these parentheses. Okay, these are, per I don't know how else to title this segment division, but it's, I, I probably spelled that wrong, right? P-A-R-E-N-T-H-E-S-I-S, -E parentheses, segments. What are these? What do you see these parenthesis segments do for you? Let's start with chapter seven. What happens in chapter seven? Yeah, he yes, it's an so in essence, he answers. Uh, was it six seventeen? Okay, thought so. He answers the, the, this question that is posed in 617. Okay, that happens to be an answer to a question, but what happens when we get our next parentheses? Where is that one? Okay, we're in chapter 10. Now, what's going on in chapter 10? There's a book that John is told to eat. 
is it now let's look at that chapter 10 together open to your observation worksheets chapter 10 because we're going to talk about if we can really hone in on what the major subject is in this particular chapter so you have a really nice concise title for this chapter because it's a parentheses moment how do we know it's a parentheses moment yeah because it was going first second third right so we have somewhere in with this one in chapter seven where does it fall here in our seals after the six so here we have that chapter 10 right parentheses sorry chapter seven parentheses right <laughs> and it falls right in between the sixth seal and the seventh seal now we're looking at the chapter 10 one and where does that one fall in the middle of the sixth in the middle of the sixth trumpet right so right here in the middle we have chapter 10 and i'm putting parentheses around there as my statement this is a parenthesis what is what is happening before is the, the sixth uh, trumpet has been sounded already but it's not finished right it's before so if it's the sixth trumpet what is it before the seventh trumpet i know that sounds like a really stupid thing to make a statement about but i'm wanting you to really think about this on your timeline okay so when he stops in the middle of the six to give you some information here he talks about this strong angel and then verse one through seven or well really one through five at least he gives you all kinds of information is it important well it might be but what does he tell you about that information do you, do you remember in verse four, very last three or four words there, or do not write them, right? Verse four of 10, do not write them. So what does that tell you as far as you and I, when we're looking at what's trying to be conveyed in this chapter, even though there's stuff going up there and they're showing you kind of, there's a mystery about things going on beyond, right? What's being told to us, there's even yet more but we're, it's being withheld from us for good reason, because God knows what we need to know. Whatever it is, he holds it back. He says, don't, don't write that. And he says, and then I saw the angel whom I saw standing at the sea and on the land, um, with the, uh, uh, land lifted up his right hand to heaven. Now, who knows what that is all about? When you see a Hebrew person, because this is who the audience would be, they stand and they lift their right hand to heaven and they begin to make a declarative statement. And he goes on to explain, he says, and he swore by him who lives forever and ever. What do you do in a court of law? You raise your right hand to heaven and you swear to what? tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, right? So help me God. So here we have a strong angel. We've got a whole bunch of stuff we don't need to know about. Don't write it down, right? Okay, so just skip it, right? Starting verse six, he stands there, he raises his right hand to heaven, and he begins to make declarative statement in the name of who? 
God who sits on this throne, right? The one who lives forever and ever. And if you're not sure who that is, it's he who created heaven and the things in it and the earth and the things in it and the sea and the things in it, that there will be delay no longer. Okay, delay about what? Well, he's going to tell you in the verse seven. In the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound, then the mystery of God is finished. If you don't know what the mystery of God is finished, what does he tell you? It's what he has preached to his servants, the prophets. So now if you tie that into the context that you're in, what is he speaking about then? What did he preach to the prophets? What kind of things? What book are we in? Revelation. Revelation. It's about what happening? The justice and the judgments and the rewards of God that he's promised, right? So this is making where he's saying, look, everything that God said about all that I'm telling you right now, I'm telling you and I'm swearing by him who lives forever that in the days of the voice of the seventh trumpet, which is about to sound that mystery that they particularly of the Old Testament found very profoundly. Did we not even just five years ago find a lot of this still yet confusing? And look how much more we now see and it's beginning to unfold before our very eyes. What about 70 plus years ago, a little over 70 years ago, Israel was not yet back on her land. No one could have even begun to imagine that God meant it literally, right? So what had the church done in many, many years previous to that, starting, I think, all the way back to Calvin, right? They made the revelation to be about Christians. Yes, they made the whole thing, the whole stuff about the saints that are stated here about being about us, the church. They eliminated Israel, the nation, because they, they thought, no, surely it can't be about Israel. But now that Israel's back, what? Does it totally change your perspective on what we're looking at here? For sure. And of course, once, once you're in the word of God long enough, you begin to realize that there is no way that God was not going to fulfill what he promised to, uh, and as he preached to his servants, the prophets. Because he, he, he said specifically to Jeremiah, as long as the sun, the moon, and the star remain, my words to you are, are absolute and they will never fail. I will perform and do every word that I have spoken, right? So here we see, this is what he's saying. And he's saying that mystery, the mystery of God is finished. It's going to be what? Now it's going to be revealed and totally known. Even yet right now, we, we still have a few things we're scratching our head on, right? And going, I'm not sure what that means exactly. But guess what? In the days of the voice of the seventh trumpet, it's going to be made known. Now, why has he done this in the middle of the sixth seal? Why has he said it at this point? He's going along. We're in the middle of the sixth seal or the sixth trumpet, rather. We're in the, the sixth trumpet. I'm going to put trumpet on here so I see it. That's my trumpet. Up here are the seals. These are the bowls. I can do a bowl pretty quick. Okay. So we have the trumpets going on in the middle of the sixth. He's telling us about something that's going to occur when? 
in the next one that's coming up. Does that make sense to put it there? And why has he done this? It's like, is it, again, it's a parenthesis. So in this segment division, we've hit a parenthesis in the book. And now he's saying, pay attention because something's about to happen. He makes a proclamation. The angel comes down. He brings this little book. And, he, and, he, and before he even addresses the little book, he says, look, I swear, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. In the days of the next trumpet that will sound, the mystery of God will be finished. So he's making this declaration. Why does he put it here? It's pretty simple. It makes sense to put it here. You wouldn't, have you ever been in a car driving down the road with somebody who's giving you directions how to get there? And as you pass the street, they go, oh, you were supposed to turn back there. How many of us have had that happen? Like a million times, right? Does it make sense that he would stop, make a pause in the middle of the sixth to say, now listen, when you see the seventh trumpet, when that's opened and revealed to you, I'm telling you in that day, in that time, that's when the mystery of God is going to be finished. Is it making sense? Okay. It's a parenthesis. So if you wanted, you could even just on your, I'm going to do it on mine, put a little parenthesis around your um, title there that says Revelation 10. Okay. You might want to just put a parenthesis there. If like what's going to happen now is we're going to have a bigger parenthesis and it's going to cover more. So what you could do is at the beginning of that parenthesis, put, put it in parentheses above it and let yourself know how many chapters it's going to encompass. Because we have one more parenthesis that these are segment divisions. That I think help you see the format of this book, how the book lays out. So what do you see is the last parentheses that we're going to cover? So chapter 10 gives us chapter 10, and he says, in the seventh trumpet, mystery is finished. And that was 10-7. Uh, Ten six. Okay. Okay. All right, so now you know this is what the parentheses is. It's, it's telling you that something is coming up. Something ahead, right? Or warning, or uh, pay attention, right? Right? Pay attention. Something's coming up. I want you to see it. I don't want you to miss it. Don't miss that turn. It's coming. So that's what chapter 10 is all about. It's a moment to say, pay attention. Something important, something profound is about to happen. All right. So now we, that's in chapter 10. The, and then 11 picks up again with that, uh, the end of the sixth uh, trumpet and moves into the seventh. Now what happens? Where's our next parentheses? It's in chapter 12. So here's another segment division that you can mark off. This particular segment division, uh, what it's going to do for you if you lay this out, here's how I did it on my chart. Uh, no, I didn't do it on my chart. Well, yeah, I did. All I did was 
I went along and I colored my boxes in where there were parentheses with green. Can you see it? Just so I could see where the parentheses are going to lie and I can catch it quickly with my eye and I can go, oh yeah, that's that parentheses moment. Yeah, but later, not now, because I'm using it. <laughs> this is my teaching chart. <laughs> yeah, all right. Um, okay, now, what is the next segment that you see that interrupts the flow of first, second, third, fourth? It's after chapter, or after the seventh trumpet sounds, right? It's in chapter 11, verse 15, right? We see the seventh trumpet is sounded, correct? Mm -hmm. And then we see in 12, one, signs begin to be given to us, correct? Mm -hmm. Do you remember what I said to you about these two signs? The first sign is about the woman. The second sign is about the red dragon, who's Satan. Mm -hmm. Ah, good girl. But there's a third one. Remember, this book's all about patterns and numbers. And three is a, is a symbolic message of what? completion or perfection, right? It's, it's finished, it's completed. So in anytime there are threes of things, you know, it, first of all, it's also very much affixed to God, who is a triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, right? A three-part God. So we have now this three signs that are given to us. The first one is the woman who has a son, a significant son, right? We have the uh, dragon. And then the last one comes up where? in chapter 15, verses one through four. Okay, so now we have this one and it's chapter 12, starting in verse one, and it runs through 15, verse four. And I call this segment division, the three signs, okay? And what this does for us is what? Well, where are we in this one? We're at the seventh trumpet. We're right in the middle of it again. And we're, we're at chapter 12, one, we go to 15, four, and there's a parentheses given. And in that parentheses time, this time, what is given to us? What do you see happening in those, huh? Backstory. Backstory, for sure. Because we see, for instance, uh, the woman, and her son are mentioned, right? And we get more details about who this woman is and who, and who her son is, right? Who is the son? Jesus. Jesus. What does it tell us about him? Yeah, he is to rule all the nations. Now, we're in a book that's talking very much about a, a, a kingdom that's to come, right? Whose kingdom? Jesus's kingdom. So in this case, we have a woman gives birth to a son who is going to be a ruler of the basically the world, right? Now we get backdrop to who this Jesus is, who all the way back in chapter one, he's identified as a major subject. He, and it's, 
It's what John saw, and what John saw was so profound. As a matter of fact, when you looked at that chapter 10 parentheses, the one who is, who was, who is to come is repeated again. We see these kinds of comments over and over, established for us all the way back here. Now he says, okay, this is the one, the one that I talked about in the beginning, the one who's now breaking the seals, right, or has broken the seals at this point. Now he says about him, I'm going to give you a little bit more insight that's significant to the storyline. So now, do you have any questions then about why these points are brought up about him? I would recommend you take a moment at some time in your homework, begin to make a list about who the sun is and what points are pointed out. And why are those points? I mean, think about um, Jesus on the whole. Um, do we have like quite a bit of information about this Jesus throughout all of the word of God. If you start all the way back in Genesis chapter three, how is he introduced to us there? He's the seed that is, is going to do what? Crush the head of Satan, who happens to be, by the way, the second sign. And in this second sign, what information are we given about him? You need to make a list on that. One of the interesting things is, is we have a couple of wars that go on here. Are they wars that occur at the same time in history or at different times in history? Right? You need to know. You need to figure that out. The first one, it talks about him sweeping away with his tail a third of the stars, right? And then it goes on and, and then it says, and so he sweeps them away and he stands before the woman to do what? devour the baby. So where in history did the, his sweeping away of a third happen before or after the birth of the son? Before. So now you're starting to get a timeline. Okay. Okay. So this particular war is before Jesus is born. Okay. Then it says, and he gave birth to a son, a male, a male child. She talks about them. It says, and then the woman fled to the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God so that there she would be nourished for 1,260 days. We've seen that over and over. What time frame is that? How much time is that? Three and a half years, right? Then it says, and, so now you know it's a, this is a conjunction. It, it supports the nurse. Added on, it follows what has just been told you about the woman running to the wilderness to hide. And it says, and there was a war in heaven. Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon and the dragon and his angels waged war and they were not strong enough. There was no longer a place found for them in heaven. Okay, now we are in this parentheses in chapter 12, 1, right, about the dragon. What are we learning about the dragon then in this first part? He has what? He's a dragon. He has seven heads, 10 horns, right? And on his heads are what? Crowns, diadems, right? So you have to start putting together a list on all the points about this and see if there's a sequential order that's going to be revealed to you. But what happens is though, have we left the timeline of this with this information? Well, it's details, but how, if you were to timeline the information about Jesus, it has its own timeline within it, right? Back out 
say, look, this is. No, this sequence remains the same, but this parentheses goes outside of this timeline. This information is not all of it is not happening here because Jesus is born. He dies. He's resurrected. That's not during this time, right? That's been way back in history before. So that's my point. So what you're seeing when you look at this, this, these three signs is the information about who is Jesus? What is his dynamic relationship with Satan? What is Satan's goals? What is he doing? Why is he there? How, how is he going to act and respond? Correct. And then we go on to, um, it tells us in verse 12, actually it's 10 through 12. And then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. So we're now here. What did he say in chapter 10? Yeah, pay attention. In the seventh trumpet, what? The mystery of God is finished. Now he's saying in 12.1, in this parenthesis, he's giving you details of information. And he's saying, then I heard a voice in heaven, the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. Whoa, that's profound. And the mystery of God is going to be finished. That makes sense, does it not? That it would be, be clarified to you at this point concerning the information about the dragon. Because what is the whole storyline been about since the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3? The tug of war, the power control over the hearts of men, and who's going to be king, right? Are you, are, it's such a beautiful thing. I mean, you can start it at, at Genesis. This is why Kay, every time she teaches, like me, she, we just get, we, you can't stop. You just keep going everywhere, right? You don't even know what to cut out so that it, because you want everyone to be able to grab a hold of that thread and pull and see how it all connects Genesis to, to um, well, Genesis 3 goes to Genesis 15, goes to Galatians 3, and then it goes all the way down here into the very end, right? And you see that thread and you pull on it and you, you can gather all these principles or these points. What is going on in Revelation? Why is it there? Why the blood? What's the blood about? What, how, why is that significant? We'll go all the way back to Genesis and start running through the scriptures to see how blood is significant to God and how he views it and why he uses it then as a symbolic message in this book. Okay? All right. You know he knows. As a matter of fact, he says here in verse 12, for this reason, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the earth and the sea, because why? The devil has come down to you, having great wrath, knowing what? He has only a short time. So not only does he know about what's up, first of all, he's going to know why. Well, there's spirit, the spiritual realm is there, and... No, exactly. The things that have been revealed have been revealed. I almost wonder if some of those thunderbolts and lightnings are there for, to keep Satan confused, right? We don't want him to know all this stuff. This is the backstory of our logistics going on. We don't want the, him to know this yet, right? Yeah. 
so deluded. He knows he's wrong. He knows he's going to lose. He knows he knows the end of the story. Yes. And he's going to be going into this abyss for a thousand years. He knows all this. And yet, what does he do? He, he moves forward. He's, his heart is so... This, like the whole thing is about trying, like he's trying to devour the child. If I can stop that, then I can... There's all these points in the timeline where he can try yes. to plan to thwart Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes, it's a it boy. We could talk about politics right now, couldn't we? Because if you look at the world, honestly, we've got so much stuff right now falling, falling down around our heads. Our our America as a nation is crumbling, and the policymakers that are in charge know what they're doing is causing these problems. And yet, they what do they do? They dig their heels in, and they and they want what they want, and they don't care. They don't care that it's destroying our world and our, and our safety and our possibility for prosperity and all those things that we, we need as a nation. They just keep going. So this is, if, if there's no better example of what's going on in the heart of Satan, just look at our politics. People can be um, absolutely convinced, but they can still be absolutely wrong, right? And what is it that makes the difference? It's when your eyes are opened. Who holds truth? Who holds truth? God does. God is truth. If you want to know what is true about how a nation is to be run, how a people are to be ruled over, because that is what we're talking about in this book. Go to God's word and say, what did God want from the very beginning? What, is, what are our inalienable rights, right? And what was our constitution in this nation built on? I'm not talking politics. I'm really, I am talking scripture here. God, the demonstration was given to us through our founding fathers in our constitution. And those principles, although not perfect, we're as carefully crafted as possible and directly from the word of God. So it's just a shadow. Is it Isaiah that talks where it has the three names of God, the judge and the whatever, and that's how mm-hmm. our three yes. systems of government are. It's the three aspects of God in that. Uh, yeah. I love the truth, the truth part uh, project with Dale Tackett. That's a great, I've got that by the way, if anybody ever would like to borrow it, it's, uh, it's kind of heavy in a way and each one is a full hour and i think there's 12 of them in there he goes through all these different pillars one of them is about government and how god designed government to be set up and what he wanted and actually our government in america what our founding fathers gave us although certainly we have flaws in some of the execution the principles that are written in the constitutional rights are absolutely declaratively right from the word of God. So if we would follow them and keep them and honor them and respect them and, and thus respect and honor God, we would do well. Okay. All right. So now we're in the, so now what I want to, I'm sorry, get back on schedule. I know my, my, I have 45 minutes. No problem. I always say that, don't I? It'll be fine. It'll be fine. Trust me. Okay. So three segment divisions. 
which I call parentheses segments. Chapter seven, where he answers the question and he gives us a beautiful picture of two people groups who we see in the unfolding of these events and he's, and he's saying about them, who can stand? Well, the first one is given to us and it's those who are what? The bond servants of God who are sealed by God for a specific mission and ministry, whatever that is. We are, although they're not mentioned, there's another significant uh, group that's sealed and marked and set apart that's going to go through a lot of this. And that's those two witnesses. They're not mentioned among the 144,000, but there's also them. So what you can know about the answer is the 144,000 symbolically is I wouldn't just declare the 144,000. What I would say is who are bond servants who are sealed for a purpose in that time frame. Okay. The second part of that is the multitudes that are presented to us who are from every tribe, tongue, nation, right? And it says, who are they? They're the ones who will come out of the great tribulation because why? They've had, they have been washed by the blood of Jesus, their garments made white. They will stand before God in his throne. So he tells us who can stand during that time. So what does that tell for us, you and I, about this time frame that we're looking at? There's hope. Huh? Yeah. yeah, we won't be here and there's hope. Now, there's going to be some that'll be here, though, and that's those who are the, what, what I call tribulation saints. They're, the church is distinctive. That's why we see here the things that are right now. But then there's going to be the things that will come after these things, and that's who we're looking at then in, in those uh, chapters, or chapter 7, rather, where he answers that question, who can stand? Well, anyone who's sealed by God for a ministry purpose and those who who are washed by the blood of Christ because they've come into faith during that time. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean what? Do you think they'll live or die during that time? Physically. Physically. Could be either. Some, some of those tribulation saints will die during that time. Some of those tribulation saints may, go, may make it through all the way to the end. But what you know is they will stand because what he asks in his question is who can stand who can stand against the wrath of god that's being poured out the earthquakes that are being administered the plagues that are going to be coming it's those who come into faith right okay so that's a cool one great parentheses right makes you feel much better about knowing that even if you have a loved one that is left behind they have opportunity if they believe God, if they will come into that faith, God says, you will stand, you will stand before me in the righteous robes of those that have been washed by the blood. Okay. The second parenthesis gives us a warning, warning, attention, attention. Something important is coming in this next trumpet. The next trumpet comes and right away we get another parenthesis. And in that one, what we get is a backstory. We get um, um, information about all those characters. So this is, these are the characters on the stage. Okay. Israel. Oh. The woman is Israel. Yes. Very good. Good. Good observation. Good observation. Who are the characters on the stage? Well, it's about the woman. And who is the woman? It's not Mary. 
right? Who is the woman depicting? And she has 12 stars over her head, right? Israel, the nation of Israel. Okay. So, all right. So that's our second segment division. Now, the third one I want to talk about super quick, woes. We talked about the woes a moment ago, briefly, but you tell me what you know about the woes. When do the woes come? When is the first announcement that there are woes coming? What did I do? I didn't write it down. Hold on. Here it is. Okay. 8.13. Okay. So in chapter 8.13, what does it tell us? Whoa. 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 Why? The sound of remaining what trump trumpets okay so we have when is the first woe when does it ha when does it end when does it finish at the close of what I forgot to write it on yes. Okay, fifth trumpet. And first woe is past. And that was verse what? Uh, 912. Okay. So there's one. So now you know you're in the there's my trumpet, fifth trumpet, right? And now the next woe. What did I do here? I didn't write it on here. I'm confusing myself and I had it on here. Here it is. Okay, there we go. Okay, then the next one is going to be, again, it's, the, it's in the trumpet. It's the sixth trumpet, right? And that one says second, whoa, right? And third one is coming soon, right? And this one's in, uh, the second one was passed, was finished up in 1114, right? Okay. So you start early on, but you're going, but I'm not giving, all I'm trying to do is give you markers by trumpets rather than trying to give you all the verses. Too much information if you do it that way. All you need to know is you've got the first, your first woe here is in the fifth trumpet. Your second woe is in the sixth trumpet. And where is your third? If this tells you, whoa, 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 the sounding of the remaining what? Trumpet. Trumpets. Now you've got the next trumpet. What happens after your sixth trumpet? Your seventh trumpet. <laughs> and that's going to be your third woe. Now this one, though, was a little trickier because there was not a final verse that, that seventh trumpet finished up saying the third trumpet is finished, right? But where do you see information about, about the subject of a, being a time of woe? Uh, that's, a, that's another reference. Yes, now that you're talking about Babylon is the next time we see the subject woe come up. It doesn't come up again until Babylon. But 
Okay, it says the third woe will, we know that it's gonna be in the progressive order because it tells us so here, right? First woe, second woe, and then it says that the other one is coming quickly, right? There you go. And when you get your detailed information in uh, chapter 12 through 15 is the subject of woe brought up there. Where it's just filling in extra information, isn't he? Right? Okay, but can you pull out of that maybe a potential understanding of why that woe is in the seventh trumpet, why that third woe is there? What does it say in verse 12? Yeah, 12, 12. Yeah, because the devil has come down to you having great wrath, knowing he has only a short time. Now, that's interesting. He's, he's brought down. Now, what did it say back in chapter 12, verse 7? Yeah, there was a war in heaven. And what happened? Michael and his angels waging war with, with the dragon and the dragon and his angels waging war. And they were not strong enough. There was no longer found a place for them in heaven. Now you go to verse 12 of chapter 12, and it says, woe to the earth, woe to the sea, because the devil has come down to you having great wrath, knowing he has only a short time. Now this parenthesis is placed between um, the, uh, during the time of the seventh trumpet. So what does that tell you then if you're looking for where this woe is? It's, it, and, wh and what is the relationship of this third woe? Because why? Because the devil has come down. Yeah, or has, uh, was thrown, you're right. Was, you're right, I like that better. See, that's where you gotta keep your words right. T-H-R, thank you, thrown down. I, I, I want so badly, to say he's come down, but there's a significant difference between coming down and being thrown down, right? So this is in 1212, that little piece of information, and that word woe comes up for you there. Now, if, pardon? Uh, in the book of Job, Satan was walking to and fro in the earth. God asked him, kind of like, what's up? What's right. Here? Well, and he came before God for what reason? To, to get permission to to go after Job and to persecute him. Uh huh. And he's going back and forth. Is this the first What do you think? Where are we in the timeline of history of events happening? In this, in the subject of this book, where are we? We're at the end time. We're all way at the end, just before Jesus is going to establish his kingdom. And so what we're seeing then is we've come along here. We're somewhere in the seventh trumpet. And it says, whoa, why? Because what? The devil has come down. So right now he's still going back and forth. And as a matter of fact, what does that tell you about the devil prior to the seventh trumpet? He still has access and going up and down and up. And so there's still spirit, the spiritual warfare that's going on. But this, it's a very subtle mention in, in that parentheses, but it mentions the word woe, which is, is one of those things that, should, that we were looking at because we were list making. 
And so it took us there. So we looked at it, we're going, whoa, the second woe is passed, we get that. Okay, first woe is, is done, the second woe is done. The third one doesn't ever say it's done, but in the, in the parentheses moment, he says, whoa. And we know that we're in the seventh trumpet also. So it's almost like it's a confirmation that we are lining up the information that comes out of 1212, right? And he says, whoa. And we know now we've got a woe, we got a woe, and we've got a woe. It has to be here that this is a woe. And here he says, woe, because of why? The Satan who has come down. Is that starting to kind of line up really nicely for you at this point? It's making a little bit of sense? Yes, it is. So interesting, very much interesting because when the first bowl begins to happen in your list making, what did you learn about the bowls? What, what, what was the, it's the wrath of God. And what is its design purpose? Is this mine? No, that's yours. I don't know who. Yeah. As a matter of fact, when he's talking in Babylon, he says to her, and you deserve it, <laughs> right? He literally makes that statement, and you deserve it. Yes, yes, yes. I gave her time to repent. And, and then all the other times where you see it, except for the one, there's one statement where you see, and they, there was an earthquake, right? And uh, the people gave God glory. A tenth of the city fell, 7,000 died. And that is where? Where does that happen? It happens in Jerusalem. And which, which trumpet are we in? Yeah, the two witnesses. It's the sixth trumpet. 11 to 13. Okay, 11, 11. Is that correct? Yep, that's it. And in that hour, there was a great earthquake. A tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. That's very interesting because this is how this, this idea of. Right here, uh, a tenth of the city falls right here. And here is the only place where they give glory. All the other times, what happens? They do not repent. They, men will not repent. And they blaspheme the name of God and they will not repent. But one mention, and it's in the city, which is what city? Jerusalem. There is a great earthquake. It happens in this in the sixth tr trumpet, and it's that second woe. And at that time, this earthquake causes people, some of them who are left, who in Jerusalem did not get killed. There are remnant that was left right after this great earthquake, and it says, and they gave God glory. Isn't that interesting? Seems like a setup to me, something else to come yet. Okay. All right. So now we're 
we're done with the three woes. Now that let's look one more segment division. This one is in the spirit. How much time do I have? Oh, good. Okay. So we're going to do, we are going to do in the spirit segment division. This one is so, so awesome. I did not discover this as a segment division until the last time I did uh, this particular study, or was it the time before? Anyway, was it, but it wasn't in the beginning. In the beginning, I just kept looking at in the spirit and saying, okay, yeah, it says in the spirit. I saw a repeated phrase, but that was all I picked up on. But then eventually I started to see something here. When you, and, and the reason I saw it is because I was examining again, the flow of thought and how things are presented, how God, how God um, uses, um, what would you call it? Literary uh, structures and rules, basically. I mean, God is the creator of language, right? And although we're looking at it in English, which by the way, is a hindrance to us because often we mess it up in our translations, uh, enough that we lose certain pieces that can really explain things to us. So we have to dig harder just to research the history and how the people of that day would have perceived it and understood it, how John understands it, how a, how a Jewish mind thinks about these things, because that's who's receiving all of this, right? So God is using language. And one of the things I noticed was whenever God gives things like visions and like, um, historical layouts how does he go about doing that well apparently at one point i had just freshly taught genesis one of the things i noticed in genesis was how, it, how the literary style of it flows and where some of the complications come in how people interpret that chapter one and two of genesis in genesis chapter one does anybody remember just off the top of the head kind of what's in just in chapter one overview yeah it's an overview a big picture it goes first day second day third day very just like we're seeing here just these real quick boom 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 first day second day right so you get and again seven perfection and completion so so in genesis you get that same idea of concise very compact, minimal use of language and words, but saying and conveying a lot, right? Then we go to chapter two. What does chapter two do? It narrows down. It focuses in on one day and one primary subject who is who? Man, who man is and how he fits into this dynamic. It, what it reveals to us in, in doing that, by the way, is that the focus of God's creation was who? Man. He created for us, for our blessing and for our use and for our, uh, what do you call it, sustenance and, and maintaining of who we are as, as human beings, right? So everything was created with us in mind. So we go in, as we're looking at the literary style of Genesis, it's big picture detail, right? Have we seen uh, something similar to that in Revelation? Okay, so think of that when you look at Revelation in um, this phrase, in the spirit. So we have the very first in the spirit is chapter one. 
And what do we see happening in chapter one? When is the next in the spirit, by the way? Not until chapter four. So this first in the spirit will be chapter one through chapter what? Three, right? Well, yeah, but you can cut off at the end of three. Okay, because the first part of that very first verse, it actually leads you into that statement in the spirit. Okay, so I, what I did was this. I took a chart. I copied and pasted the four in the spirit statements uh, so that I could just observe them laying side by side. And then I laid it and evaluated in, in the context of, of, the, of all that I'm looking at here and say, so what am I seeing? One of the, and you could actually do it with, with even just a segment like this. And you say, okay, so where does that fall? Well, these fall, this one is, this is chapter, um, starts in chapter four, which is what we, we're going to see, right? In the spirit, one, three, in the spirit is chapter four. And then when is the next one? 17. So we can go through 16, correct? Now we can see this one in the spirit. It begins at 17 and it runs through what? When is the next one? in the spirit is chapter 21 and 22. So this one goes through 20, sorry, 20. Okay. Now, when you think about the book on the whole, because now here, I think I'll go ahead and use this bottom section to kind of subdivide some of these thoughts. What, do you, what is going on in chapter one through three? If you're thinking about the, the concept of how God uh, uses the, the language to, to express insights and opinions, and how, does he, how is the flow of it going? Genesis started detail, or no, big picture, and then detail, right? What did we have here, though, in chapter one through three? Well, it was all about who Jesus is, right? How much information did we get about who Jesus was? A lot, a lot, a lot. Then it was letters to the churches. How much information did we get about different kinds of churches? A lot, a lot, a lot. So would you call that detail or big picture? Detail in the spirit. So we have detail. All right. Now we go into chapter 4 to 16. And what's covered in 4 to 16? All of this, right? How much detail? Well, there, there's a lot of information because it's a lot of activity. But are there details uh, expressed in any one particular uh, thing? I mean, it just is, okay, a man on a white horse comes conquering and to conquer. Lots of detail? Would you like to know more? Yes. Oh, yeah. We wet your appetite. That's all it really did. So what do we see then in chapter 4 to 16 after details? We see big picture. Now, what happens in 17 to 20? Yes. I'm looking for my page 2 on my chart. Hold on. 17. <laughs> Oh, I'm so glad you did. You know what? That is so cool. That is so cool. Oh, I'm finding my, where in the world is my other? 
I have too many pieces of paper here. I'm looking for the other half of my chart. It looks like this. Are these, what's this down here? <laughs> hmm. Do you suppose? There it is. It's on the floor. How'd that happen? I do not know. There's my book words to my studies I couldn't find earlier. Okay. Um, see, you should never throw your things around. That's just not right. Okay. So, okay. We're looking at 17 to 20. Now, 17 to 20, we see again, then what? If, if the pattern is details, big picture, what do you assume the next one was going to be? It's probably going to be details. Now, let's see if we can kind of affirm that for just a moment. What do we see going on in those verses? Yeah. When does the judgment of Babylon come? If you're looking at this chart here, it has to come in the bowls, right? And probably is, it looks to me like the, these bowls are all poured out. The final one says, now let me show you what? The judgment of Babylon, right? That's in chapter 17 and 18, correct? Now, what did it say in uh, the seventh bowl? Did it mention Babylon? I can't remember if it did or not. Ah, there we go. Okay, no, then that's not going to work. Okay, that's not it. Uh, the seventh angel poured out his bowl on the, the air uh, on, with a loud voice, the temple from the throne saying, it is done. There were flashes of lightning, sounds and peals of thunder. There was a great earthquake. The great city was split in three parts. Now we know what that is, right? And nations fell. And then what's the next word? Babylon, the great, was remembered before God to give her the cup of wine of his fierce wrath. That, so that's in 1619. That's the seventh bowl. Correct? Are you following me? So now all of a sudden you go from chapter 16 to chapter 17, and now it says, oh, hey, hold on, wait a minute. The seventh angel and the who had those seven bowls came and spoke with me saying, come here, I'm going to show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters. So then what happens in 17 and 18? All those details about the harlot and her judgment, right? Then we go into uh, 19, we see a war going on. Hold on a second, let me go here. We see praises in heaven. The first thing they do is they praise him for the judgment, right, of, of uh, the harlot who is Babylon. And then in, uh, in 19, seven and eight, it tells us there's a marriage supper that's going to come on. Kings, of, kings and kingdoms come to judge and wage war. Who is that? Kings of kings, the king of kings comes Jesus. to judge. Yeah, that's Jesus. I, I really should just say Jesus because that makes sense to me. But the text says king, the king of kings. So the king of kings comes to judge and to wage war. You see that 9 to 16. So you're again, you're getting all these details about what's going on where? In what bowl? The seventh bowl. And so the, and then we stopped at the end of 19, but you could, you could go on and do the next segment as well. But so what you see then again is those are the details about things that are happening where? In the seventh bowl, right?
All right, now 21 and 22, what does that do for us? If we've gone details, now what's next? Big picture. What's the big picture about? The new, the new heaven, the, the new heaven and new earth. We see Jerusalem coming down out of heaven and he calls her the bride. He gives you a lot of details about the, about the metrics of the city itself. But the emphasis is that within that city is who? The bride, right? As the bride worshiping and being before in the presence of God. Okay, so that's in, in 21. And then 22, again, it is a closing, just a sweeping closing. I'm coming quickly, right? So what we see in 21 is this big picture about eternity. That's, we get almost no details on here. Darn. But it's a big picture. At least you know, right? You do know enough. So do you see this segment division then? Details, big picture. Details, big picture. Now, I actually got to thinking about it, looking at it a little bit more. Here it is. Um, I kind of titled these a little bit. So here's, let's just title these some. What was going on here in this first segment was a message to who? Message to the churches. And it was about things, and he called it in the segment division, the things that are. I'm just going to put what is, okay, as a, to simplify it. Then what is the next part of this, which would go right here with this big picture part? Right. And in the outline, he says it, it's what? the things that will take place. Here is the message to the churches and what is. This is now, it shows heaven's throne first and what must take place. Okay. Again, that is in line with in the spirit and in the spirit. So in a way you could just take that line right out of there if you want. That'll make that make more sense to you, okay? In the spirit message to the church is what is, what must take place. Then the next one is in the spirit where we've got our details in that section, so for sure 17 and 18, real clear to you what's going on. The judgment of Babylon, lots of detail, lots of burning, lots of people running, you know, fire and brimstone and everything going really crazy. Then the next part is Jesus coming. He's on his white horse. What does he come for? For war. for war, the great supper of God, where the birds of the air are called to do what? Eat the flesh of men. So in that one, what would you call that? Here it's, it's a, a message to the church. Here it's the heaven saying what must take place. Now, what is it? What do you see happening? The wrath of God, right? And who is it for? Yeah, those unbelievers, right? So this is about God's wrath for unbelievers. Okay? 
Now that's that one. Let's do this one. This last one is, um, well, easy, peasy now, right? Where are you? You in chapter 21 and 22. What are you? What is the major message there for us? It's the yes, it's time to, yeah. It's it, as a matter of fact, he literally says in there, he who in verse 7 of 21, he who overcomes will inherit these things. I will be his God, he will be my son. But for the cowardly, so now he's making a reference back to here. The cowardly, God's wrath is coming for them. The unbeliever, the cowardly, and it goes on to de describe them as unbelieving, abominable, murderers, immoral persons, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars. Their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Then one of the seven angels had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and spoke to me saying, come, I'm going to show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain. And he showed me the holy city, the dwelling place of the bride. This is your inheritance. So here it's God's wrath. Here it's what? Yeah, but it's God's reward, right? And who is it for? For overcomers. That, that's the terminology they use. That's why I used it in that way. Okay. So can you see now that in, I broke that in the down in the spirit one down several times, actually this time where before I got this part, <laughs> details, big picture, details, big picture. But this time I got this message to the church is what is heaven's throne and what must take place. God's wrath what he's going to, how he's going to handle the unbeliever and then God's reward for the overcomer. So again, more segment divisions. So those are our segment divisions. That's the layout. We didn't go into a lot on those uh, lists, but we got about five minutes. Uh, tell me, were there any questions you had that came out of your list making that we want to discuss right now? And by the way, did the, did this chart that we sent out help you at all? Oh, yay. yay. Okay. Oh, good. I'm glad. All right. Well, I, I because I, I know, and I, I had lost it too. I had, remember I had also lost it. So I was hemming and hawing on that one, but I looked back and I had sent it out before the last time I taught. So, so I went ahead and said, okay, I'll do it because I don't, here's the thing for me as a teacher, I'm not trying to trick you up. I'm trying to actually make this simplified for you as much as I can without giving it away before you make your own discoveries. But sometimes for me, as when I'm learning, if you can just point me kind of in the right direction, when I get there, I can still go, oh, I see it now. I get it, right? But you have to have a little bit of nudging sometimes to get pointed, you know, like, like picking up a toddler and turning them in the right direction and then they can walk forward. So I'm glad you, I'm glad you got that one. Tell me what you saw in your list making. Any questions? Uh-huh. Yes. And then the city of God. Yes. Now those are. Yes. The, yes. Yes. Very nice. Those are excellent contrasts. 
So what, what she just brought up there, those are things that when you get into your text, and if you can remember some of the things that she just said, you can go back in and do contrast and just put them in, the, in your observation uh, along the side so that you notice them. They are very obvious as soon as they're pointed out to you, you go, oh yeah, for sure, those are contrasts. They're contrasting these two personalities in here, okay? Um, we looked at the wrath. Uh, I thought that one was pretty simple. Um, how did you see the wrath and the blood relating to one another? Did, or did you see? Okay, yes. And also, the, when the wrath is poured out, what, what is actually happening on the earth in many situations? Blood is occurring. Either the blood is used as their judgment, right? The wrath of God. Like the seas become blood, the rivers become blood, or the moon becomes as blood, dark as blood. So symbolically, there's a picture. And then there are some literal things that will happen on the earth as well. So sometimes it's symbolic, sometimes it's whatever, or sometimes it's, um, I mean, it is a literal thing that the moon is going to turn to blood. We've heard of blood moons for years, right? But what, but the fact that he's using a blood moon in this moment as a judgment is also a symbolic message about blood, right? Okay. So you might want to do a little more research there, but that's interesting. Um, any others? I thought it was interesting that she went a little deeper. I was like the word study. In all of those passages on wrath, there are actually two different reports. Okay. And one of them is more emphasizing the punishment aspect, whereas the other one emphasizes more the passion aspect. Right. 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 Very so good. Which one is speaking of? Is this speaking of the anger of God or is this speaking the punishment quality? I don't have it, but one of them has to do with like when straw catches on fire and it consumes like ah, that kind of some of them are that, that was the fiercest one because that talks about it, it's like boiling and there's an end to it. Um, I I saw in the one where the souls are, are they under the altar and they ask, how long, O Lord, will you refrain from avenging our blood? And of course he says, that's in chapter, that's the fifth seal, okay? In chapter six, verse 11, I saw in there this, this restraint by God in a way. It's like, because we know if we're in the sixth uh, seal, fifth or sixth seal at this point, we do have quite a bit coming ahead, but we know that throughout all history, these things have happened to these people. Their blood was shed simply because they named the name of Jesus, because that was their identity. And in identifying with Christ, many of them were killed, right? We see it even happening yet today, to this very day, it happens. In the days of these, this tribulation, it's going to continue. And that's one of the things he, he exhorts. He says, uh, wait until what happens the full number of those who are going to also shed their blood in the same way also so you can see there's a restraint of god in his in what he's going to do there um 
but the God's judgment will be upon men who dwell on the earth at, at, the, at an appointed time. What I thought about was, isn't that interesting that he doesn't in the very moment deal with that aspect of avenging blood. And therefore there's going to be generations of men who were the executors of the souls and they're still not yet judged, but there's going to be a day when he judges, he says. Um, I, I just thought that the interesting thing of his restraint and the timing and the designated point, and there's an appointed time for it, that it's being withheld with, or delayed, I should say, although he says not long, because by the way, what happens right away then in the sixth seal? The fifth seal, he says, a little longer wait than what happens in the sixth seal. There's an earthquake. The sun became black and the whole moon became what? Like blood. So now that subject of blood comes up. We looked at that on my chart that I sent out to you. Um, the, in these trumpets in particular, but he says, how long until you avenge our blood? So I marked it in red, you see here in that, in that uh, fifth seal. And he says, wait a little longer and tell the, your, the number of their fellow brethren be killed. There is a final conclusive, conclusive statement. Now the blood has been avenged. And where does that happen? In chapter 17 or 18, I think it is, of where Babylon is judged. So what, where are we in the unfolding of things? The seventh bowl. Yeah. So we're all the way at the seventh bowl when he says, okay, now it's avenged. Now, I don't know that he's not avenging it through the whole thing, quite honestly, because there's a lot of things going on. We certainly see judgments, judgments, judgments. But in that final seventh bowl, that's when the totality of it really comes up. That's when the fierce anger, I'll bet the passion is really shown in that last bowl there. Several times it has both words. Yes. Fierce wrath. Yes, very cool. Oh, I can't, I need to look on that. Okay, and then we see after he makes that statement, then in the fifth seal, he talks about um, in the seventh seal, he takes those prayers of, the, of those saints, the ones who just said, how long, O Lord? He mixes that fire from the altar before God. Now, this is where you need to understand the layout of the temple, how it, what all these different parts were for. So they took the coals from the sacrificial altar, went to the altar of incense. They, they mixed the prayers with that, with incense. And then what did they do? Threw it to the earth, right? Prayers of the saints. Then what is what begins to happen? This trumpet sound. And what's the first thing? Blood. What's in the second angel? Blood. What's in the, um, What's after that is still more... The rivers and the springs is more death, right? Dark, the sky, the sky becomes dark and the moon. So you begin to see this punishment of concerning the blood that had been shed. And for sure, the first three really are clear, I think, indicators that blood is used symbolically to say, I understand about your blood and it will be fully avenged. And then he begins to show the blood qualities. Okay. Any others? Keywords? Earthquake, blood, wrath. Okay. So the point to it really is, is to 
kind of make a relationship. How did you see the relationship between the plagues and wrath? When is the word wrath really declaratively stated as being related to in this? Yeah. Okay, so it starts with these bowls, right, in chapter 16. The bowls being poured out, it makes it very clear that in the bowls is what? The wrath of God. So in that point, now we've hit the peak, the pinnacle of the, of the power and the passion of God in this. And these bowls begin to be unfolded. When you see the word uh, plague then come up, how does that relate? Well, in 51, the plagues are the wrath of and, and in the plagues, the wrath of God is finished. And what are the plagues? They're also in the bowl. So it's like the bowl is the wrath and the plagues is the means through which God executes his, his wrath. So there's this, there is this coexisting or relationship between these two words of wrath and plagues. Yeah, the what and the how. That's a good way. Oh, you're so good. Thank you. The what and the how. Did you hear him? That was so simple. The what and the how concerning God's wrath. Um, and if you just look at the list on them, it's fire, smoke, brimstone, the killing of men, plagues. Um, oh, this one was really good. When the seven plagues were issued in 158, it says the temple was filled with the smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one was able to enter the temple until the plagues were finished. So you're talking about right here at this, this third woe, and they're ready to pour these out. At this point, the temple in heaven is filled with smoke and no one is allowed to enter into that temple until this is finished, right? Did you catch that? Does that remind you of anything? Okay, yes. Okay, I'm going to give you a couple of verses you can, you can go look up later. Um, first, first one is Mark 15, verses 33 to 37. That's a New Testament one. And do you know what that one is pertaining to? The cross. And what happened when Jesus was on the cross? There were three hours, there was an earthquake, the, the, the veil rent, but there was darkness that fell on the earth for a period of three hours, right? Um, from the sixth to the ninth hour, I think it says, right? Okay, so there's that part, Mark 15, 33 to 37. Now it's also in the other gospels too, but I just picked that one out. Thank you. Yes, you did good. Very good. You are sharp. Exodus 19, 21. Also Exodus 40, 34 and 35. Now there's more you can read before and after and all, but that'll give you also another thing to consider when you're thinking about this seventh trumpet where God's temple now is filled with smoke and he tells his angels, no one may enter until the wrath is finished. Why would that be? So think on that. Well, I was going to say that, so at the end of um, the cross, he says, it's done. Yes. Sevenfold, the angel says, it is done. Yeah. 
So there's smoke filled throughout here from his glory. I kind of think about the idea of what you were saying about the distinction between the words wrath, one being his fierce anger. And in this case, it talks about his wrath. Wrath, he gives the wrath out and the whole temple just fills with this smoke. And, it, and in that, what God says then is basically leave. Do not come back into my presence until this is finished. Yes. 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 Right now. Do not bother mommy right now because I'm going, I'm going to my room. Do not, do not knock. Do not come in. Do not bother me until I cool down. Right. Maybe. Yes. The other thing is I, I've always thought about was the one where Jesus is on the cross and the darkness that fell kind of the same idea it isn't about the smoke or whatever but i thought you know what was the purpose of the darkness and what was what was the issue that was being handled at that moment on the cross it's when jesus was bearing our sin right this is a moment when what's going to happen for seven bowls judgment is being poured out on man for their sin so and jesus was taking the wrath but still darkness fell and there was this moment where God did not look upon his son and he cried out, why have you forsaken me? Isn't that a beautiful picture? It's, I mean, so the, the symbolic picture of the idea that here at this moment, that temple is filled with smoke and he's saying, stay out until it's done. Yes. Yeah. All right. We did a good job and see, we, end, we ended on time. Bye, you guys. Thank you, Kathy. Have a great day. You too, Holly.